0: Well, good morning. My name is Roger Poupart, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. I've been away uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, time of vacation, as well as kind of lining out our next series. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be moving from the book of Proverbs to the Gospel of Luke, so you can begin reading ahead and preparing yourself for that. I know we've had wonderful teaching while I've been out of the pulpit, because I've been here a few Sundays, as well as listening online to the rest of them, Today I want to continue in the book of Proverbs, so I invite you to turn there in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at wisdom. And since we're talking about wisdom today, I thought it would be good to look wise, so I grew a beard while I was away. Uh, It's actually a leftover from my time uh, camping up in the mountains of New Mexico and then uh, having a a wonderful fishing trip in Alaska, but uh, when I came back I heard all kinds of comments about the beard. Uh, everybody has an opinion. Uh, my wife's is the only one that counts, but I I thought about putting two boards up here, keep it or lose it, because there's been such uh, a vote on it. But it doesn't matter. For those of you who don't like it, in a few weeks I'll be speaking at a conference in Africa, and it's going to be too hot to keep the beard for Africa, so it'll be gone here. Oh, I know. Okay. <laughs> now, I jokingly said, yeah, Okay. I jokingly said I have a beard to look wise, but today as we look at Proverbs 4, what we're going to see is how we can truly be wise, because what God offers to us here in His Word is wisdom on how to be wise, and it's wisdom that is written for us by King Solomon, who has said to be the wisest man who ever lived. And these are words that were directed by the Holy Spirit of God, so in it we find the true way to be wise. And in it, we read in Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 4, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me. And he said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. There was a Spanish poet by the name of Cervantes, and he said that a proverb is a short sentence based on long experience. A proverb is a short sentence based on long experience. And what we see here is the experience not of one lifetime, but of several lifetimes. Because we have Solomon passing on to us what was passed on to him by his father and his mother. His father was King David. His mother was Bathsheba. And so you have two kings of Israel that are passing on wisdom to Solomon's sons or the grandsons of David. And we are the beneficiaries of reading this as well. He begins with the exhortation to his sons and us, as he says, to listen to what was shared with him by his father and his mother. Now, maybe you've had the experience where an older person or a parent will say to you, when I was your age or when I was young... And, and our default reaction is to roll our eyes and to think, well, here comes another story about how they walked in the snow uphill both ways to school, <laughs> right? And, and we want to tune them out. But instead of doing that, what we should do is perk up our ears. And we should say there's a bit of wisdom coming, something that has been learned through their experience, through their life. Uh, friends, the tuition is a lot cheaper when you learn from somebody else's experience, uh, we can't live long enough to pay all the dumb taxes ourselves. And so it's good that we learn from what something, somebody else has learned. Um, I told you that I had been up in New Mexico camping, and I was actually on a Boy Scout camp out. So I was there with my son, my 12-year-old son, and a bunch of other 12- and 13-year-old boys, And uh, it was a wonderful week. We were up in the mountains at 8,800 feet was where our camp was. We uh, had cooler weather than here in San Antonio, as you can imagine. It was also a lot wetter. In fact, it rained just about every day, sometimes three or four inches in a single day. So uh, it was not only cold, but wet. and, And the boys wanted a fire. We were cooking over a fire and over camp stoves. We cooked all week. And it was interesting to see these 12- uh, and 13-year-old boys trying to start a fire. Now, you know, they, they got their man cards, they got to play with uh, fire, and they had axes and knives, and nobody was injured. Uh, they all came back intact. But as they were out there, watching them trying to start a fire with wet wood, uh, their, their wisdom, their ability at that age was grab as many paper towels as you can... <laughs> take those bottles like bug spray or Axe body spray that say flammable and uh, soak the, the, you know, paper towel wad and then stuff it under a pile of wood and light it on fire. Now the result was there would be a big poof and then the fire went out. And after several attempts, they then, uh, you know, saw the camp stoves with the Coleman fuel and they're like, well, let's pour that all over a log and that'll work. And uh, we were able to tell them that we don't use brownie water. If you were a Girl Scout, you know, brownies are the youngest, and in Boy Scout, you don't use brownie water to light fires, right? So we said there's a better way. And what we did, the leaders who had learned from their leaders back when I was a Boy Scout, you, you said, let's go out and find the driest wood possible. And one of the places you find dry wood up in the mountains when it's raining all the time is in the canopy of a tree you have all these dead little sticks that are close to the trunk and you have you know tree branches that shield it from the the majority of the rain so you're like let's go around and gather as much dry wood as we can and uh now you're not getting big logs you're getting things that are about the size of your pinky which is great because you start with tinder you know frayed rope and moss or little things and then you put a little uh, you put a Y stick in the ground, make a TP fire, and you put all these little tiny sticks there, and then you go to sticks about the size of your thumb, and then you work your way out to eventually some logs that you've split. And you, you pile all this up so that the, the tiniest wood is inside, and as it lights, it will begin to dry the wood as it burns out. And again, the boys would, uh, they were very excited about we're going to do this, so they come with one little handful, we're ready. No, we're not starting until we have all the fuel for the fire. And so eventually what they learned is you can make uh, big fires with wet wood, but it takes the right method and preparation and being able to do it. Now, I'd like to tell you that after success like this, the next morning they were ready to repeat the process, uh, but they immediately went back to, who's got more cans of bug spray? And we're like, that's not how we're going to start a fire. Now, I share that story with you because God's method of passing on wisdom, in many ways, is learning from those who have already learned. In fact, it tells us that not just in life skills, but especially when it comes to the word of life. Second Timothy two two says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God says to parents, this is how you pass on knowledge, my knowledge, to your kids. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them, In the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Now he tells us the method of teaching in verses seven through nine. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and on the frontals on your forehead. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If we were reading this in modern terms, it would say when you're sitting on the couch with your kids, when you're driving carpool and they're with you in the car, as you go through life, more is caught than taught. It's not just, okay, kids, sit down. Now is study time. Now is lecture. And we do that. It says you're to look for teachable moments all through life. You know, early in that week, we told the boys, you need to gather wood, put it under a tarp. It's going to rain. We need dry wood. And they didn't listen, so we said learn by experience. And then as they tried their method, finally they're able to say, okay, we're ready to listen. And, and sometimes that's what happens. We have to look for those moments and seize the teachable moments. And, and it's not just as parents who are teaching their kids. It's something God has given all of us an opportunity to do. You who have been married for a little while and have learned uh, what it takes to have a good marriage and how to navigate some of the rough waters of marriage, you can talk to a newly married couple and say, look, just because you've had your first fight, your marriage isn't over. We fight all the time. But this is how you fight fair, and this is how you forgive, and this is what you do. Your friends at school, you get to help them. Uh, remember, the tuition is cheaper through what you've learned, and you can, you can tell others, listen, I made that mistake. It's why there are advisors in college and upper-class students who help those who are brand new. God has called on all of us to pass on knowledge. And when it comes to to the knowledge that God provides, Proverbs 4 goes on to say here in verses 5 through 7, "'Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding.'" When you read this word acquire, it's actually a commercial term that spoke of a financial transaction. It literally means to buy. He says four times in these verses, wisdom is so valuable, you should seek it and you should purchase it. Now, you can't buy wisdom per se. Uh, You know, you can buy a lot of things in this world. And there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, there is more information available to us in our day than there has ever been before. Most of you have a, a smartphone in your hand or your purse or, or in a pocket, and you can Google something, and 1.6 trillion bits of information come up. It doesn't make you smart. And and just having books uh, on your shelf doesn't make you smart either. And having a Bible isn't going to do anything if you don't go through the Bible and let it go through you. I saw a website where you can actually, it says, are you having a party? Do you want to look wise? You can rent a library. They'll bring in the, these great books and they'll fill your shelf with this you know, wonderful library. And it says, do you, need, do you need august, smart-looking friends, men with beards? You know, they'll, You can rent friends for your party too to make you look like you have this great circle of friends. Friends, that doesn't make us wise. As it talks to us here about having wisdom. You can look earlier in Proverbs three thirteen through 15. There it says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. As we think of this picture of wisdom and its value and the desire for it, you see here in Solomon's Proverb test in chapter 4, he pictures wisdom as a bride that is to be pursued, to be cherished. And he says, as you seek her, there are rewards that come. Verses 8 through 9 tell us, prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. As you think about what you're pursuing in life, where does wisdom rank in your list of priorities? If you were to sit down right now and say, what is it you are investing uh, your time, your energies, your efforts in right now? Where is wisdom? You know, many would have at the top of their list wealth, fame, power, influence. Where is wisdom in your list of priorities? You know, as you think about those things that you're, you're pursuing... Uh, I want to show you a picture of a man that many of you will recognize. This is Steve Jobs, uh, one of the co-founders of Apple. Many of you are holding in your hand right now products he helped design. I see people waving their iPhones at me. So Steve is is a guy that, as you think in terms of what to pursue in life, he was a guy who had money and power and influence. I mean, if you were to look at the world's standards, he hit the high-water mark in all kinds of things. And if you were to sit down with Steve Jobs, you can't now because he's passed away, but if you were to have sat down with him before he died and you were to ask him, Steve, of all the things you pursued in life, what are you most proud of? What do you think he would tell you? You know, you don't have to wonder because before he died of pancreatic cancer, he wrote these words for us. He, he was on his hospital bed, and he said, I've come to the pinnacle of success in business. In the eyes of others, my life has been the symbol of success. However, apart from work, I have little joy. Finally, my wealth is simply a fact to which I am accustomed. At this time, lying on the hospital bed and remembering all my life, I realized that all the accolades and riches of which I was once so proud have become insignificant with my imminent death. In the dark, when I look at the green lights of the equipment for artificial respiration and feel the buzz of their mechanical sounds, I can feel the breath of my approaching death looming over me. Only now do I understand that once you accumulate enough money for the rest of your life, you have to pursue objectives that are not related to wealth. He says, stop pursuing wealth. It can only make a person into a twisted being just like me. God has made us one way. We can feel the love in the heart of each of us, and not by illusions built by fame or money like I made my life. I cannot take them with me. What is the world's most expensive bed? The hospital bed. You, if you have money, you can hire somebody to drive your car, but you cannot hire somebody to take your illness that is killing you. Material things can be lost, but one thing you can never find when you lose it, life. Whatever stage of life we are in right now, he says, at the end we will have to face the day when the curtain falls. (coughs) Friends, when the curtain falls in your life and you look back at what you've been pursuing, will you be proud of what you pursued or will you uh, find yourself a lot like Steve Jobs? Maybe not as a billionaire, world famous, but you know, it didn't do him any good at the end, did it? He looked back and he says, learn from my experience, learn from my mistakes. He says, I climbed to the top of the ladder and I found he was leaning against the wrong wall. What are you pursuing in life? There are only two things that last for all eternity. One is the eternal souls of men and women, and two is the word of God. And what you hold in your hand... Whether it's the iPhone that Jobs helped create that has a Bible app, or the printed Word of God in a Bible in your lap, that is where true wisdom is. That is where what life gives us that is worth pursuing is found, because in it are the eternal words of life: how to be with the Lord in heaven when we die, and also it points us to the people that are most important that will last for all eternity: how to love them and serve them. What are you pursuing in life? In John chapter 6, when Jesus gave the disciples a chance to walk away from him, as many in that day were doing, uh, Peter responded to Jesus in John six sixty eight. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus would affirm that. A few chapters later, he says in John ten ten, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says there is a way that leads to destruction. The Bible calls it the broad path of destruction that goes to hell. Or he says there's a narrow way that leads to life. And as we listen to the words of Solomon as he writes these, he gives us this picture of two paths. One that that is the way of wisdom that leads to, to the Lord and another one that is the path that leads to destruction. Look at what he says in verses 10 through 19. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you an upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. As, as he presents this, this path, this choice of two paths for the second time in this proverb, he says, Listen. Are you paying attention? Listen. And then he adds a second command. He says, accept my sayings. He literally is saying here, listen and obey. He says, it's not enough to have wisdom and knowledge if you do nothing with it. It's like going to a doctor and getting a prescription. And you fill the bottle. The pharmacist says, here's your medicine. Do you understand the instructions? It's printed right there on the label. And we put it on our, our table at home and then we look at it. And we go, I don't feel any better. In order for that medicine to do anything, you have to open the bottle. You have to internalize it. You have to take it. And it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if you have one or 20 Bibles sitting on your shelf at home. You have to open it and go through it and let it go through you. You have to internalize it. You have to apply it. As we think about Solomon speaking of wisdom here, as as he's sharing wisdom, remember to whom he's writing. He says to my sons. King David passed on wisdom to King Solomon, and Solomon passes on wisdom to sons who would one day become the king themselves. And when Solomon died, one of his sons named Rehoboam took the throne. And we find this mentioned in 1 Kings eleven forty three. It says, And Solomon slept with his father and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. So Rehoboam has received wisdom. He's been taught... He knows what he needs to do, how he needs to live, how he even needs to reign. And yet when he takes the throne, what we find there in 1 Kings 12 is that as Rehoboam took the throne, the people of of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes gathered together and they said to him, they said, hey, welcome to the throne, king. Listen, your dad was a great king, but he was hard. And we've had years and years of of high taxes and hard labor and various things happening as all these wonderful things were being built. And we need you to lessen the load a little. Now, you're the brand new king. And you're facing immediately this crisis, and you're going, what do I do? So Rehoboam wisely says to the people, hey, give me a couple of days to think this through, and I'll come back to you. And so as Rehoboam goes away, he goes to his, king's, his father's uh, previous cabinet of counselors. Now think about that brain trust for a minute. Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. Do you think he brought together some wisdom? I mean, here's the brightest guy on the earth, and he says, you're the best person in this area, and you're the best in this and this. So he has this wonderful brain trust to consult. And Rehoboam goes to these guys. And these ladies, and he says, listen, this is what the people said, what do I need to do? I want to stop there for a moment. I want to ask you, do you have anybody like that in your life? Do you have a cabinet of counselors? Do you have a group that you go to for wisdom? People that when you're faced with a decision or you're you're looking ahead down the road at some things you need to do, do you have people that you talk to? Do, Do you seek additional counsel and wisdom? You heard we have our town hall meeting uh, next week. And in it, we're going to be talking about what's coming in the future. And and that, that is stuff that we as leaders of the church have been praying about and planning for a long time. The budget, the staffing, the vision. And those are things that as I pastor the church, I have a group of elders, godly men that you as, as the congregation have, have said, these are people that we want helping to lead this. We have a wonderful staff. You've, you've seen that the last couple of weeks as you've been exposed to, to all the various pastors. And you see that they're able to accurately handle God's word. We have ladies on our pastoral team, uh, directors over various areas that bring gifts and talents, our administrative staff. All of these are people that are part of the, the direction setting of our church. And beyond who we have here within the walls of Wayside, there, there are seminary professors and mentors, people I know who have been in ministry uh, more years than I've been in. And, and there are people that I can pick up the phone or talk to and, and say, hey, Give me a little advice and insight here, and you can bounce ideas off them. And sometimes you have to find a specialized consultant. It may be an an area of expertise, a a legal or a, a specific matter, and you can go to those individuals, and you can draw wisdom from them. Do you have people like that in your life? You know, as you, you talk to outside counselors, they help you slow down the process sometimes. And they, they're, they're removed from the situation, so they don't have all the emotions. I mean, think of Rehoboam. I'm the new king, and if I listen to the people, I'm going to be seen as weak. Or if, if I do this, and so he's, he's, he's caught in this middle. And, and here are people that are a little more removed and are saying, just relax. Your, your legacy is, is not about this one decision, one moment, if you make the right decisions. And so having outside counselors who can bring a different perspective that you can bounce something off of, sometimes even just to vent to, so you don't come back and say the wrong things in a, in a setting that is going to create damage. Rehoboam wisely took a time out and talked to these individuals, and we should have those people in our lives as well. Now, after having this, this counsel given to him, 1 Kings twelve seven says they offer their advice. It tells us, then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, will serve them, grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Rehoboam hears their advice. Says, Okay, Mr. Poupard said, go gather dry wood. Start small, build it out, build on the pro. No. You guys got any more cans of uh, bug spray over there? He rejects the counsel of these elders, and he goes back to his running buddies. He calls a bunch of 12-year-olds, so to speak, together, because verse 8 says, but he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. The Bible says to seek the counsel of others. And it's not that he was saying, well, I've gotten one set of wisdom. Now I need to go and make sure I have more. What he did was he said, I don't like your advice. So I'm going to find somebody who's going to say what I want to hear. Is that what you do? And the result is he did that. He listened to his friends. He told the people, hey, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. If you think my dad was hard, I'm going to be harder. And you know what happened? Like spraying a a bunch of bug spray on a tissue, there was a fire. And it tore the nation. And the ten northern tribes of Israel said, you're not our king. We don't have to follow you. And they split off into the northern kingdom of Israel. And the remaining tribes became the kingdom of Judah because of this decision. Proverbs thirteen twenty tells us, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If you're seeking true godly wisdom, don't look for somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Find somebody who's going to tell you what you need to hear. Psalm 1 tells us how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. God says right here is the owner's manual. Right here is is the, the owner's manual that will tell you all the things you need to know about life, about relationships and how to spend your life and what to invest in and how to live your life. And he says if we go into it and we meditate upon it. I've seldom seen a Bible that's falling apart that's attached to a life that is also falling apart. Like I said, the book does no good if it just sits on your shelf. You need to go through it and you need to let it go through you and you need to apply the truth. God has not left us alone to make decisions in life by going rock, paper, scissors. He says, I've given you my word and in it is wisdom and the words of life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Here in Proverbs 4, God says that his path is a straight path. He says you're going to be able to run and not stumble. It's not the twisted, treacherous, slippery slope of sin that the world offers. And as you think in terms of the light, he compared it. He said, as you're walking in the path of wisdom that God has provided, he says it's like a sunlit path by the rays of the dawn. And then he says, all the way to the point where the sun is at its apex, and you're getting the full light of, of, this, of the sun. And yet the way of the wicked is described as one of deep darkness, where you stumble around in the dark. Verses 20-27, through 27, Solomon comes back a third time with a call to listen. And this time, he chooses the path of wisdom. He sa- he, as he says, for the third time, listen, he says, "'Choose the path of wisdom that leads to life. "'My son, give attention to my words. "'Incline your ear to my sayings. "'Do not let them depart from your sight. "'Keep them in the midst of your heart. "'For they are life to those who find them, "'and health to all their body. "'Watch over your heart with all diligence.' For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. He says, eyes forward and keep moving forward. He says, don't, don't look backwards in the regrets of the past where you're going to stumble around. Don't get drawn off course by looking at all the stuff that's all around you. He says, focus fully on what God has given you, the, the way of the righteous as you walk with Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on the cross. And as you walk with God, as you, you stay with him, he says, you will have a solid and sure path rather than stumbling in the dark on that slippery slope of sin. Verse 23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Some translations here say, above all else, guard your heart. This command is in the emphatic position saying the condition of our heart is of the utmost importance. Now, there are a number of medical professionals among us. And and every one of them here will tell you the heart is kind of a vital organ when it comes to your body, right? Right? You got a few organs that, if they have to be removed, you know, things like your appendix, various things, you can lose those. If your heart is diseased and weak and stops, what happens? That's pretty much game over, right? Life's gone. The heart is a vital organ. Now medically speaking, the heart is this muscle that that pumps life-giving blood to all the various organs in our body. I don't think I have to convince anybody here that that medically speaking your heart is important. And as Solomon is speaking to us, he's, he's talking in terms of our heart in a spiritual sense. And he says it is just as vital for life because if you have a diseased heart, it will ultimately end in spiritual death as well. Eternal death when it comes to us and the Lord. In the Hebrew language, the word for heart referred to the center of an object. It it had a literal meaning of the kernel of the nut. It's that seed within that creates life. And it was used to speak of our emotions, our intellect, and our will. It was everything that encompassed the decision-making of a person that led to what they did in terms of their life. And when it comes to the condition of our human heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's not a good checkup, is it? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. You know, as we're talking about our heart here and as Solomon is talking to us, in this this proverb, we have a sad example. Not only have we already talked about what happened with Rehoboam, but I want you to remember who's teaching Solomon. His father and mother were who? David and Bathsheba. If you were here last week, you'll recall that Michael uh, told you the story of David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, remember King David was king and Bathsheba was married to a man by the name of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. In 2 Samuel 12, uh, we, we find the story of what happens. David is the king. He's there in the palace. The army of Israel is out in the field. David, as king, should have been out with the army. But he's home, lounging in the palace. The Ark of the Covenant, the army, David's bodyguards are all gone. If you've ever wondered why David could look into Bathsheba's courtyard and see her at night as she was bathing, it's because if you go to Israel and you look at the topography, uh, where the royal residence was, it was surrounded by uh, certain homes. And that was the the mighty men of David. It was the the bodyguards. It was kind of like the walled-off areas we see in countries today that are the safe zones. So Uriah, being right by David, tells you he was in the inner circle. He was the best buddy of David. He was a bodyguard, one of his advisors, one of his main men. And the reason Bathsheba was out there, if you've read the the story in the Old Testament, she had been at the temple being purified. And if you look at what was going on, it was a ceremonial purification after a woman's cycle, which told everybody Bathsheba was not pregnant. And so she's there. She's doing nothing wrong. She's in her own home at night. David shouldn't have been out where he was. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. He should have been at war. Then he looks over. You know, you can't, you can't sometimes keep yourself from catching a glimpse of something. But it's been said before, you can't keep the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. When David caught sight of Bathsheba, he should have said, Whoa, I don't belong up here. Instead, he looked. He lingered. He lusted. He saw her. He wanted. Remember, this isn't some stranger. This is a lady who's been in his house. She's been at the company business parties with her husband. She's, she's a friend. It's his best friend's wife. And David looks. He lusts. He brings her to the palace. He sleeps with her. He commits adultery. She gets pregnant. David panics because everybody's just seen Bathsheba at the temple knowing she's not pregnant. David's friend is away at war. She was not pregnant. Now she's going to turn up pregnant. So what does he do? As Michael shared with you, he calls Uriah back. Hey, go in. Enjoy the pleasures of your wife. But this guy was so righteous. He says, how can I go to my own home when the Ark of the Covenant and the rest of the army's is in the field? I won't do this. And he sleeps out on the street. David, rather than dealing with his sin, many of us have found ourselves in this place. Oh, no, I gotta. we keep digging the hole deeper, right? If I just do one more thing, I can cover up what I did wrong. So David decides, I'm going to have Uriah killed. And, and do you remember how the orders get sent back to the field? Uriah carries his own death warrant. That's how trustworthy this guy is. David could have folded the piece of paper over one time and handed it to Uriah, and Uriah never would have looked at it. He's, he's carrying his death warrant back that says, put Uriah near the wall, withdraw from him, let him get killed. So he murders Uriah. Bathsheba goes through a time of mourning. David says, I'm going to take her as my wife. Uh, yeah, people couldn't count back in that day. How many months, you know. Boy, that's a very, you know that baby doesn't look premature. But the baby, as you'll recall, was not healthy. God knew the sin And all that this child would go through. And the the baby did not survive. So that child dies. Do you remember how Solomon described himself? He was the only son of David and Bathsheba. That first brother died. So Solomon is the guy who lived. He's the first baby of the marriage. There's forgiveness with God when we blow it. And so Solomon... I'm giving you all this background because I want you to understand, as Solomon is writing these words to his sons, this isn't some hidden secret, friends. Everybody knows the story about grandpa and grandma. And what Solomon is saying is, as he talks about the broken, dirty, diseased, death-giving heart that we have as people, he's saying, yeah, my mom and dad, your grandfather and grandmother had this kind of heart. I want you to turn over to Psalm 51 with me, because I've told you about the sin of David and Bathsheba. I've told you about their attempt to cover it up. But you'll remember the story goes on because a prophet by the name of Nathan shows up one day, and he walks into the palace, and he tells David this story. He says, hey, there were these two um, people. One guy owned one little lamb, and then this, this rich guy had a whole flock of lambs. And, and, and the day comes where the, the rich guy has a visitor and he goes and he steals the one lamb of the one guy and he feeds it to his guest. And remember as the prophet Nathan is telling David this story, how Nathan reacts, he blows his top. He says, this guy needs to pay. This, this needs to be judged. And that's when Nathan said, you're the man. He says, in, 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 in this parable form, he says, David, Uriah had one little lamb, Bathsheba. You've got a concubine and a harem and wives and everything. And you went and stole your best friend's one little lamb. He said, you're the guy. And David is cut to the quick. His sin is revealed to him. The scales fall off and he repents of his sin. And what we find here in Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Lust, adultery, murder against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He confesses his sin, and I want you to drop down to verse 10 and look at what he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Jeremiah says our heart is deceitful and wicked. He goes on and says, who can understand it? Who can deal with it? And David says, there's only one way to deal with it, friends. The Lord confessing our sin, going to God, and he can create in us a new heart. David understood that he was wicked and sick and had to be healed by God, and the same is true for us, because every single one of us here this morning has a terminal heart condition. Do you realize that? Romans 3:10 tells us there is none righteous, no not one. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us here has a diseased heart spiritually. We've all sinned. We've all said to God, There are two paths, one of wickedness and sin, and one of life walking with you. And every one of us has chosen to walk the path of the wicked at some point in our life. And what he says is, You can change paths. You don't have to stay on that broad road to destruction. God offers us the opportunity to change past. Romans 6.23 tells us, the path of destruction, it says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. How do we get on the right path? Romans 10.9 and 10 tells us. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. Remember the heart we're talking about? that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The heart is wicked. The heart is lost. The heart is the place where we make decisions. Our intellect, our emotions, the things we desire. And it's, it's the center of our will. It's, it's how we act on it. And what the Bible says to us is we all need to recognize in our mind, in our heart, the thing that controls us is that we're lost. We're on the wrong path. We can argue, well, I'm not as bad as that other person. I'm not da 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 It doesn't matter. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't grade on the curve and say, well, you're not as wicked as that axe murderer. What he says is the wages of sin is death. And so the first thing we have to do is acknowledge who we are. We're lost. We're far from God. And then we have to say, but God has not left me alone. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died to pay the penalty of death. And he offers that free gift of life. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says you don't have to walk the world's path that goes where there's a bridge out and you plunge into destruction. He says the cross has been laid across that chasm of sin and he's given you the path to walk across it in faith and get home to heaven. But it requires a change of thinking The word repentance that we find in the Bible literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And what repentance means is we realize we've been on the wrong path. We've been walking away from God. And we recognize we're going the wrong way. We stop. We act on it. The word means to turn around and go in the other direction. We come back to God. And we accept him for who he is. It says if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, you can come home. Maybe you've walked a thousand steps away from God. What you'll find when you repent is God is one step away from you. And when you turn around, he's right there, ready to forgive you, ready to receive you. And he offers us that gift this morning. We're, we're about to be reminded of what he did as we come to the communion table. And what God tells us through the communion table that we're coming to is how we can come home. He says, I died for you. I went to the cross to pay that penalty of death that you owe, that I owe for our sins. And he says, if we will take that step where we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus acknowledging, I'm lost without you, God. I need you. Then he says, you can be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've been trying to do it on your own, work your way to God, thinking if I'm just good enough, if I go to church enough, then that'll take care of it. That's not how we get home. We get home through what Jesus did. He said, there's just one way home. And I've given you the path, the path that leads to life. And you have the choice this morning. If you've never chosen it, you can do so today. In a moment as the elements are passed, if if you're ready to say to God, God, I recognize I'm lost and I need you as my Savior, and, and you're ready to do that this morning, then take the piece of bread. It represents the body of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross and died for us. And say, God, I'm taking this. I'm accepting your death in my place. Take the cup of juice, which represents his blood, and say, Jesus, I recognize that it is through this, your blood, that my sins are washed away. And say to him, today, God, I'm turning to you to be my Savior. If you do that, you're changing paths from the one of death to the one of life. Others of us here in the past have done that. We've come to faith, and we've we've had times where we've walked away from God. And God tells us we don't lose our salvation, but we can break our fellowship with him. And he invites us to come back again, to get back on the right path of righteousness, to walk with him. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've been walking away from God this morning, take this time to examine your heart and mind. Confess your sins to the Lord. Ask for His forgiveness. He'll freely give it.